This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. On behalf of everybody, the American Enough Podcast and the Mouth Media Network, happy Thanksgiving. We just wanted to express our sincere gratitude and thanks to each and every one of you who have either downloaded, liked, subscribed, or even spread the word about American Enough. It's been a hell of a ride over the past year, and without you, we wouldn't have been able to dissect everything from how satire is changing the way that we talk about politics, to the way in which we're perceived as Americans overseas, to even how race and gender and our immigration identity is being retooled in real time. Thank you for your support. And as you think about what it means to give back to your community this holiday season, join the American Enough podcast in paying special homage and having the hearts and prayers in minds of the California firefighters that are on the front lines each day in Butte County and in Ventura County fighting those forest fires that are raging both Southern and Northern California. To give, if you're able, join us in making a small donation at the Ventura County Community Foundation at vccf.org or for the North Valley Community Foundation or nvcf.org. Once again, if you're thinking about giving back to your community, join us in giving a little love and investment in the sustainability and the longevity of the communities plagued by these fires. vccf.org or nvcf.org. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Of the last six episodes of season 44 of Saturday Night Live, nearly every cold open or skit throughout the arc of the episode has satirized a member of the current president's staff press advisors, chiefs of staff, cabinet members, even Supreme Court nominees. And regardless of your politics, one thing remains clear. All too often in this administration, the story isn't the body of work being done on behalf of the American people. Sometimes it's the staffers themselves. Filling up column inches of tabloids, it has really undercut the dialogue necessary for any president and their administration to debate issues and have a spirited conversation around those issues, even if you disagree with them. But again, regardless of your ideology, the fact remains that when we elect a president, we elect with them an entire team to help run our country. And reflecting on the awe-inspiring work that can be done in a short period of time from the perch like the White House, those stories of how that work gets done is often peppered with unique insights about the people doing the work themselves, unsung tales and untung moments that never really get the limelight or really get satirized on Saturday Night Live. In a recent book, The West Wingers, an anthology of stories from the Obama White House, the identity of initiatives, policies, and laws, and the stories and the hopes and aspirations behind them provides an interesting contrast not just to the work being done by today's administration, but specifically how inclusivity, empathy, and one's own personal narrative and struggle can change the arc of history in one direction or another. Each of the volume's contributors personifies Obama's core philosophy that we are all our brother's keepers, and the life-changing effect of being sought out by the president or his or her staff can come through clearly when you actually break down the work that's involved, the emotions inspiring that work, and the long hours and constant pressure that apply how that work can take a burden or provide immense opportunity for years and generations to come. 
Joining the podcast today are not only the book's editor, but three contributors to that story, breaking down how their contributions have changed the arc of history and bent it a bit more towards justice. Gautam Raghavan, the book's editor, served as Barack Obama's liaison to the LGBTQ community, as well as serving in the Department of Defense and the 2008 Obama campaign and the Democratic National Committee. Stephanie Valencia is a former special assistant to the president and principal deputy director of the Office of Public Engagement. She also served as deputy chief of staff to the U.S. Secretary of Commerce, Penny Pritzker, and had the opportunity to coordinate policy implementation ranging from trade agreements to championing elements and initiatives inside the White House called the Champions of Change and leading public engagement efforts with the Latino community. Anish Rahman is currently the head of economic and social impact policy at Facebook, but previously was a speechwriter to President Obama and had roles within the departments of Treasury as well as prior work working on behalf of CNN as a war correspondent. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer. Gautam, Stephanie, Anish, thanks for joining American Enough. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. So thanks for having us. I, I wanted to start with um, Gautam. You know, it's an incredible tale that you've been able to co- um, compile here—an incredible set of tales. Um, tell us a little bit about um, why it was important for you to piece together these specific stories and what you sort of learned going through the exercise—not just of editing a book, but specifically compiling these moments in American history as a way to reflect on where we've come as a nation. Yeah, and thank you for asking the question, and really excited to be with the podcast today uh, with a former colleague of ours. Um, you know, the, the interesting thing about this book um, is that if the 2016 election had gone a different way, I don't think we would have put this together. Um, but the, the conversation that started the whole thing actually happened at Stephanie's New Year's Eve party, and like so many good things, uh, it started over bourbon. And we were in our kitchen, and we were, you know, quite honestly feeling uh, kind of bummed because um, the election went the other way, and um, we were feeling a sense of loss and nostalgia and, and you know, honestly, some degree of anxiety and concern about what we were seeing unfold in terms of the new administration coming in. And I met Stephanie's best friend from college, who's a book agent, and we got to talking about this idea of, you know, the, uh, the experience that we had all had in the White House and the stories that we had heard and the people we had met. Um, you know, I grew up watching The West Wing. Um, it was the show that sort of inspired my political awakening. And the thing I loved about the show was the cast, right? It wasn't just about the president. It was about the people around him. And when I got to the real White House, I found a, a very similar experience. There were these remarkable, smart, passionate, um, really determined people who I worked with. And they all came from you know, every walk of life and had different kinds of stories, but were really deeply committed to serving the country, to serving the communities that they came from. Um, and so as we were in the middle of this sort of, um, quite frankly, horrific transition, um, it felt like the right opportunity to make sure we were telling those stories because, um, you know, we, well, one, we all had a little bit more time on our hands, but we also had some space to think and reflect and really put on paper what we learned from our experience in the White House, um, the diversity of the team that we worked with and why that mattered to the policy outcomes that we saw. And um, importantly, although we didn't know this, then, but we do know it now, is we wanted to find a way to share stories that would inspire the next generation of public service. Because 
so often we hear about government and government workers as being lazy or the deep state, quote unquote. Um, and we don't hear these inspiring stories about what it means to come from outside the circles of power and privilege, right? To be people who had no plan to work in the White House, who aren't, you know, donors, um, but but really just worked hard and put their heads down and believed in the president and his vision and got the chance to serve the country. So that was really about why this book came together. Um, you know, as we put the the stories together, um, I, I, one of one of our colleagues reflected the other day that. You know, most of the authors didn't read each other's pieces, but yet you see very similar stories coming out. You know, uh, I, I, I didn't mention this, but I'll just highlight that the majority of the stories are by women and people of color. And so one of the themes that we see a lot is this idea of the imposter syndrome, right? That there, that we got there and we're all sort of like second guessing our ability to do the work. Um, you know, are we good enough? Are we smart enough? Um, so that's something that runs through all, all these stories. There is certainly a passion for for public service and giving back that's, that runs through all of these stories. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned earlier about diversity and inclusion, um, we had a saying in the Obama White House that people are a policy. And you really see that play out through all these stories where it's not just about people who had a great story or an anecdote to tell, but in every one of these stories, the storyteller is relevant to the story that they're telling, right? So whether it's my story about being an openly gay married man um, watching the president's evolution on marriage equality, or Stephanie's story about being um, a Latina staffer working on the confirmation of Justice Sonia Sotomayor. I mean, these are all, these, this is all personal work for us. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we really made that clear in the book. Yeah, and I, I think that's a really interesting component um, of how you put forward these stories because there are many names that many readers or uh, observers of politics may be familiar with. You know, Cecilia Munoz, who uh, directed the uh, Domestic Policy Council for President Obama, uh, Julie Rodriguez, a granddaughter of uh, Cesar Chavez. Um, but many of the names are broadly anonymous, at least by way of the cultural zeitgeist of how America perceives the Obama administration. Um, hardworking people that were there at every turn of major events on behalf of that presidency. Um, but those stories are unknown. And I think sometimes in politics and in governance, particularly those of us that have had a chance to work in them, we, we sort of feel that you always put the boss first, that the that the person themselves is not necessarily the story. And not that, that this book makes the individual staffers the story, but as you pointed out, out, uh, Gautam, you know, each one of them creates a policy or can inspire a policy change. And, and Stephanie, I want to ask, you know, reflecting on not only your contributions in, in the vignette that you write for this book, but also just broadly in the arc of your tenure with the administration, how important is it to really understand the individual that is ushering that change along, that's working on a confirmation hearing or that's working on enacting a specific um, regulatory reform? How important is that individual's own personal struggles or narrative to the outcome at the end of the day? Well, I think that... Um stories and people, it kind of, you know, it comes down to the, the people and, and the stories that they have. And, and when you tell that and make that connection of the, um, the personal and what impact, you know, policies have on people, I think that was one of the most powerful tools that we had in, in the administration, in the, in the Obama administration. And I think it is really important. It's a lot harder to attack a policy or to criticize something when somebody is actually attached to it or that an outcome is attached, a more personal outcome is attached to it. And so whether it was the staffers who were working behind the scenes or the people that we were elevating who would benefit from the policies like the Affordable Care Act, 
um, and telling their stories and making those connections, it, it would always change or shift a conversation when you made it more personal with the story. So I think that was something that we really tried to do um, in the storytelling we did in the Obama administration was to make that personal connection both to the staff who were working on these issues and telling that story, but then also the people who would be affected by them, the ordinary citizens whose lives would be changed because of the Affordable Care Act. One of the more powerful stories in, um, in the book is one by Michael Robertson, who um, was a former colleague of ours who uh, you know, had cancer while he worked at the White House and was working to pass the Affordable Care Act. He was in remission for a few years, and then he, um, his cancer came back and unfortunately passed away uh, a couple of months ago. Um, but I think it's, you know, he, his example and his story is one that is really powerful. And to just try to, you know, understanding people's perspectives and impact of these um, policies on, on their everyday lives. Um, and I think as we live in a world where, you know, things are more divided, people's stories and that impact and understanding of uh, policy on people's lives is a very important one. The last thing I'd just say that, you know, I think you alluded to this in, in your question, which is, you know, how we look and kind of did things differently in the Obama administration from how things are being done now. And I think, you know, a number of people who contributed to the story, and I think the thread that runs throughout is one that, you know, as Gautam talked about, we all struggled with things like imposter syndrome. But fundamentally, you know, President Obama, when he was elected, he knew he was president of all of America. And that was really important in a mandate that he gave from the top down to his entire team, that we weren't there to be partisan. We were there to govern and be a government for all of America. And so for those of us who worked in the Office of Public Engagement and throughout the White House, our mandate was to be open, transparent, and engaging with the American people and with all people. So it was our duty and role to make sure we had that door open to the White House to anybody who wanted to engage with us. That's an incredibly good point because I think one of the more moving stories that I was uh, that I read through or that really resonated with me when I was reading through the book was of the president's uh, videographer and the story of the recording um, of his eulogy at uh, the 2015 or on the heels of the 2015 uh, tragic Charleston shooting in which he starts singing Amazing Grace and um, regardless of whether you like a president or not, it was a moment in which you are bal you could see a true, genuine um, balancing of of grief and tragedy, but with a sight towards hope and optimism for all people, not just those affected by the shooting, not just those in Charleston, but really broadly the United States. And I think Steph, to your point, you put it very well that this is about governing for everybody. And the issues covered in the book, but also covered by the administration, address um, you know, Muslim-American relations, tribal problems, racial conflict, marriage equality, the rollout of the ACA, as you mentioned. Um, I I'm curious for all of you, and anyone feel free to jump in here, there's this sense of empathy that seems to have governed the Obama philosophy and, and certainly runs deep through each of the vignettes in this book. Um, and that sense of empathy that not only do we look out for one another, but that we are a land of Americans together, and it's we, the people, not necessarily us versus them. Um, how do you guys reflect on the importance of that sense of inclusion and empathy uh, in government, when, not only when you reflect on your own times, but when you reflect on what's happening today and the way the, the policies being rolled out today seem to be creating division for the sake of governing? Uh, I, I'll, I'll jump in. Um, I would... I would say it was even more than empathy. There was something more activist within that that recognition that we the people, 
uh, when you think about the White House as the people's house, like the, the, the definition of people was due for um, a broader, more inclusive definition. And so I think when we came in, part of what made the 2008 campaign so electrifying and, and probably a high point of just general patriotic optimism that, that I and many others felt was that it was this, this sort of activist idea that we're going we're gonna to start to define from the White House out the term people in the way that the country actually has established it. And, and it was pretty powerful. And, and part, you know, my whole chapter is about the identity of being an, a son of immigrants and thinking of that as separate from being an American exceptionalist, that, that to, to really be a patriotic American, you have to have been here for five or six or seven generations. And that the earlier you were in your American story, the more you had to prove. And it was really in the moment of writing this speech for President Obama, where he really embraces our immigrant past as part of what makes us exceptional, that I was able to combine it all into a sense of self that when I looked at my dad and I looked across all the generation of immigrants that had come, recognize that was a core part of the American identity. And in the speech, he actually plays with that, that rhetorical frame of us versus them, saying that that's often where we default when we think about new immigrants. And that when we do that, a lot of us forget that we used to be them. And then he goes back through the early waves of immigrants. And it's like all those folks, you know, who came through Ellis Island on, on one coast and Angel Island on the other, before they were us, they were them. And I think we all came to our own, um, personal kind of like deeper senses of self at the White House, because we were combining to Gautam's point, the imposter syndrome wasn't just about, do we deserve to be here based on aptitude, but it was, do we deserve to be here based on ethnic identity and being the son of immigrants? Like is the White House a place for us? And I think we all went through our own processes to get to a place of real ownership of that part of our identity. And having left the White House, I think a real sense of responsibility to maintain that and to share that with all the other people out there who are like us trying to juxtapose their identity with what it means to be American. And, and unfortunately, I think President Trump has set us far back. The challenges are deeper because they're not just about how we talk about us as a people, but really how we're organized and how we feel. And the divides are, are pretty deep. But I think that was what was powerful to me about the administration. It wasn't just empathy, but there was something activist there at, at kind of making sure that the federal government caught up to where America was and our definition of who we the people um, was about. I want to I want to stay on this point, um, particularly because of the contrast um, that you mentioned with what is happening with the current administration, um, and without li litigating, you know, the politics of it. Um, both Stephanie and Anish, you worked on issues that are perhaps some of the most. Uh, most sticky that can't be unwound easily overnight. I want to get your read on that. And, and by that, I mean that there are many policies, whether it was, you know, a fast track visa for entrepreneurs in this country, or whether it was DACA protections, um, or whether it was even just um, honoring and celebrating the fact that transgender individuals can serve in the military as patriots. Many policies are being unwound by this president. Um, however, it does seem that what is core to the Obama optimism and hope for this country uh, is that there are a lot of things that you guys worked on specifically that cannot be unwound and that are forever within our fabric. And, you know, there are probably countless examples, but for you, Anish, um, you are a father, you have two daughters yourself. And when you talk to them, either already or in the future about that storyline and that speech, um, it will create a body of knowledge and know-how in their minds that this is 
the type of America that can be, regardless of who is president today. And this is the type of America my my father helped create a narrative around by writing those words on behalf of the president. And for you, Stephanie, um, I mean, you, you had an incredible body of work, but one thing that can't be unstuck, regardless of how the balance of the court tilts over time, um, is the, the successful confirmation vote of the nation's first uh, Latina justice to the Supreme Court bench. And I think it's very easy for all of us to uh, get caught up in the cynicism of the current administration. Um, but in both two examples, those are attributes of the work that you've done that will forever remain a fabric of America's history um, and future. H- how do you reconcile those sort of very sticky, very institutionalized gains on behalf of a presidency in a country um, and contrast them against the, the more cynical um, retreat that is being taken on other initiatives that can be unwound? Well, I think that um, one of the things that it highlights uh, for people, and I think this is this last couple of years has made this even more clear, is the uh, both the power and some of the challenges of wielding power from the executive branch. <clears throat> We've seen what you know any an administration can institute things like DACA. They can institute things like any number of other executive actions across the federal government. And it's why elections matter, and it's why, you know, um, some of the, we were talking yesterday about um, the recent Title IX uh, rollback that the Department of Education is in the process of doing now that will essentially roll back a lot of the protections for sexual assault um, survivors on college campuses, Um, something, again, that the Obama administration did um, through executive action and through accountability mechanisms with, um, with universities that received federal funding. And I think what this has made very clear is that there are really important things that governments and that administrations can do through executive action that that can quickly be undone. And so it matters who's sitting at the White House, but it equally matters who's sitting in Congress, and it equally matters who is sitting on the United States Supreme Court. And I've had many moments um, over the last almost 10 years now that Sonia has been on the bench where um, where her voice has been very critically important, even though it may not, you know, she may not be writing the majority opinion, um, you know, just the way that she frames her legal arguments and opinions is, I think, really important. In fact, she talks a lot about how in her legal writing and of her legal briefs um, that she tries to make them accessible because she actually wants people reading more Supreme Court briefs. So she wants people to, you know, there are certain things with lots of footnotes, of course, but, you know, she tries to make it an approachable and accessible way to understand the importance of these Supreme Court decisions and understand the rationale for her legal thinking. And I think that more of us need to kind of understand those things and the impact of how government works together. Um, But, you know, I think in this moment, uh, what people have awakened to, especially in the last two years of the Trump administration, is how fragile some of these um, administrative actions can be. And that in order to really make longstanding change, it either has to happen through through Congress or be held up um, and it needs to be held up um, through the Supreme Court. Yeah, I would I would only add. you know, the thing I'm most proud of in in my time in the administration, and I think what, what Gautam has done with the book is really laying a marker, a vision for the America that we all believe is possible. Uh, you know, Obama's speeches are, are aspirational and they are grounded in morality around who we want to be as a people, the progress we've made to date and where we can go next. And I think with this book, Gautam has handed history, not just the most diverse set of White House stories ever told, but 
a really important look at one of the defining moments of our political and cultural history, which is the election and administration of, of President Barack Obama. So I think that that when you write for the president, you write for history like that is a marker that is now immortal and out there as a vision for what Americans in 2008 felt was possible. But but the undercurrent of that is, and a lot of people forget this, who joined Obama and just saw him win twice and progress achieved. Uh, progress is not linear. Progress, even once attained, is not then perpetually secure. It's really hard and it's really messy. And the whiplash that we're all feeling going from Obama to Trump is part of what happens in this country. Um, there's often these cross currents of of reckoning with regression. And it's in those moments of, of kind of intense division that, that then sometimes we leap forward more quickly than we would have if we were just progressing step by step. And so I think it's really important for the people that feel engaged now in a new way, who, come, who came of age with the President Barack Obama and just assumed inertia was going to carry America towards the, the vision they had, that you've got to go get in the arena and you've got to fight for it. And even where there are setbacks, that's just more cause to get back up and to go after it um, with more intensity. And, and the president knew that. He had been an organizer and was, was always, um, I think, pretty aware that, that it's all about just that persistent work over a long period of time that gets you there. And, and I think he's been out there recently talking about don't look for perfect, look for good. Good is, good is what we want. We want to just keep moving it forward. And I think that's the enduring lesson out of this, this transition. I think Obama's legacy in part is that marker that's out there for all time of what America could be. And then the legacy of this moment, if we choose to make it so, is that we recognize progress as something that is continual and that it's messy and that you've got to be really um, committed to it over a long period of time if you're actually about making an impact. I think that's incredibly well put, especially when you frame up that progress can still be realized despite whiplash. And I think one of the biggest um, senses of that whiplash um, uh, has been in the immigration space. I know just late Monday um, of this week, a U.S. District Judge uh, John Tigris uh, issued a ruling saying that Congress has clear command uh, through the Immigration and Naturalization Act, the INA, that anyone who arrives in the United States may apply for asylum no matter where they entered. And Trump's rule, Trump's, the Trump administration's attempted block to enforcing new limits on who can apply for asylum and where, um, irreconcilably conflicts with the INA and the expressed intent of Congress. And I mentioned this not necessarily to have a policy fight about, um, you know, Trump's attempts here on asylum seekers, but Gautam, you know, it's noted in, in this book, as well as in countless interviews that you all have done, that many of those who worked in the White House came from well outside those circles of wealth or access and privilege. And, you know, maybe they they were like uh, Barack Hussein Obama and had a funny name, or they didn't look like what we assume the halls of Congress look like, or or maybe even just to be blunt, they didn't look like what the, the cast of the West Wing uh, looked like, even if we all were inspired by Aaron Sorkin's words in it. And I'm curious, um, as you went through this book, but also when you reflected on your own time um, serving the, the last administration, what it means to pursue and prior prioritize the protections of others that may not seem like us. Um, how important was that to the success of pro uh, creating protections for those who are people of color, for those who are immigrants, for those who are veterans, for those who are disabled and beyond? Um, and I ask that with, within the context of this asylum rule, because it does seem that based off of who the president has staffed him, uh, staff around him now, that the 
everything from their own background, their own sense of privilege and access, or maybe even the color of their skin, seems to be creating a division and being able to prioritize a policy of inclusiveness as opposed to a policy of vitriolic division. Is that a fair characterization that coming outside of a particular uh, circle of background makes a material difference in the way that that administration thinks about governing across the American people? Absolutely. I think it's critical, right? And I'd go back to your to the earlier point you raised about empathy, which is, you know, and, and this is any, any good activist will tell you that the, the power of personal stories matters a great deal. It's, it's hard to uh, to discriminate or hate or to sort of misunderstand someone when they're sitting across the table from you. And it, it may be a little bit of an overstatement, um, but I, I think everywhere that we saw uh, in the Obama administration, a positive move on LGBTQ equality or on immigration or on protecting people of color, whatever it might have been, we have people from those communities, not just in the room, but quite often at the table. Um, and I can, I can think of like very specific examples of that. And it's not to say that you, you can't be sort of proximate to that kind of experience or understand it or stand up for it if you're not a member of that community. But it, it does make a clear difference in terms of um, what we saw in the Obama administration and what we're seeing now in the Trump administration, that who the people who are there who are able to make decisions and influence um, policy, when they, when they actually reflect the lived experience of Americans across the country, um, and when they tell their stories and are sort of felt and heard, it, it makes a tremendous difference. And so, you know, this, uh, again, underscores the earlier point I make, made about people are policy. It, it can't be said enough. Um, I think it's really hard for a lot of us to watch this administration and the, the lack of diversity, um, you know, and it's, uh, I want to be very clear, this is not just about checking boxes, right? This is not some sort of like surface level kind of diversity quota filling kind of initiative. Um, for, for us, it was a very intentional um, effort from the very top down to seek out and recruit the best talent and making sure that that talent represented the American people. So again, if you want to be, you know, I think this also connects to um, how you think about governing, but if you really want to, to govern in the best interest of the American people, you kind of need to have them all at the table. So that's, that's my take on it. Yeah. And that, and that makes complete, uh, sorry, that makes perfect sense specifically because the more, disparate views that you have at the table, the more you can, you know, make sure that that spirited debate, um, that back and forth, that tension that Anish spoke of is actually represented in the policymaking process. Um, and, you know, Stephanie, I, I, outside of your work directly within the White House, you also had a chance to coordinate that policy implementation um, uh, on behalf of one of the president's cabinet members, the, the U.S. Secretary of Commerce. Um, that that tackled really tough and meaty policy issues that might extend beyond, you know, what is this a sexy element of a presidential speech. I, I know that you had a chance to, for example, work on trade deals on behalf of the White House and the administration. Uh, you had the chance to coordinate policy across, um, you know, weather and climate policy to intellectual property policy to trade policy. Um, walk us through, just for those of us that have not worked um, in government or on behalf of a president, what is it like, or is there a material difference to step out of the work that's being done day-to-day um, within the building of the White House and walk across the street and do that on behalf of a cabinet member? Or do you do you use the same tools in your arsenal to complete the same work with that spirit in mind of what Gautam spoke of, of making sure that different individuals with different views have a seat at the table? 
Yeah, um, we definitely did. And, um, you know, I think, you know, working at the Department of Commerce and all of the different agencies, there are, you know, a lot of different policies they consider. There are a lot of things that they're working to implement, um, you know, whether it's actual legislation that they're implementing from Congress and how trade deals are uh, implemented or managed um, to, you know, how money is spent across the federal government. And it's really important that, especially because, you know, the federal agencies um, are really the engine of the federal government, they're really where the the work happens um, to, you know, implement the laws and, um, and implement federal programs. It's really important that you're talking to a lot of different people who are impacted by those programs in different ways. And whether it was trade and advocating for businesses across, you know, around the world, I think one of the things that became very clear to me is once we are outside of the United States, there's no Democrat or Republican. It's about advocating for U.S. business and industry. It was really important for us to have, you know, a strong um you know, front when we were visiting foreign countries to advocate for the best trade deals and the fairest trade deals for U.S. companies. And that required us to not see, um, you know, partisan breakdown. It was really, you know, what was best for our country and what was best for the country that we were trying to do the deal with and what would help us to create jobs back here at home. And so I think even within the federal agencies, there's a, a mystery to how the work gets done and how the sausage gets made. And I know that in, in our time in the administration, we try to open up those processes as much as we can. There's a lot of formality around some of that work with like comment periods and really formal ways to get um, input from the American people. But we also try to find more informal ways for us to do that by having really aggressive travel schedules for our cabinet secretaries to go out and talk to people across the country, um, you know, diverse stakeholders about the policies of their agencies to make sure that they weren't just hearing from um, people in the in, inside the Beltway, people who were lobbyists and people who had vested interests and could have representation in Washington, D.C., but that it was really important for us to see how the policy and the programs were being implemented out um, out in America. And, and I mean, part of that, that, that's a really, really important frame that when you take a look at the United States from outside of the United States, you're seeing one country representative of um, its citizen, uh, its citizens, its uh, businesses, and it's not necessarily divided in, in red or blue. Um, and, and when every time the president speaks, um, I, I know we had mentioned this earlier, but it was really important to make sure that the policies, the actions, and the rhetoric um, match that sense of that wide tapestry of who America is um, and what America can be. And you know, I'm curious for you, Anish, as somebody that had to reduce all of those policy efforts that Gautam and uh, and uh, Stephanie were working on into into inspiring words on a page um, and make sure that when they leaped off the page from the president's mouths, that when they touched the ears of the American people, they too felt included, that um, in the same way that Stephanie and her team would run a multi-stakeholder process on maybe a business-oriented policy, that when the president spoke to those words, it sounded like it wasn't just prioritizing the interests of some, but that it was attempting to, to capture the gains of many. And, you know, one time I had the pleasure of, of watching a speech that the president gave in person, um, and it was an address to the Asian American and Pacific Islander community um, out in Washington, D.C., and I actually could see you stage left uh, monitoring the feedback uh, of the speech. And, you know, this is not an unusual exercise for anyone that's written speeches just to see what lines land or, you know, how the audience reacts to different uh, rhetorical 
flourishes. But when, when I saw you actually monitoring the crowd, it seemed that as an Asian American yourself, writing a or having a chance to pitch in on a speech that the president was giving to the Asian American community, that it's very important that when you observe what's going on in that sea of people, that for the next speech on that topic or for the next time you have to you have a chance to write on his or her behalf, that you are able to capture the reaction and sentiment of the American people in those words in the same way that um, Gautam and Stephanie's policy work would need to capture as many Americans as possible. Can you walk us through what it's like to observe those words and see that audience reaction, create a feedback loop in the way that you want to write and test messages as you move forward as a presidential speechwriter? The the president is someone who's larger than life for almost all Americans. And so as you're pointing out, and it took it took me a bit to realize it um, as a speechwriter to the president, where where the where you as a writer can bring something that is really personal to the audience, to the president's speech, that is always going to make it an effective speech. Because when the president is able to speak to people about their aspirations, their struggles in a personal way, it's a connection that's that's really profound. Um, And that was one of my great moments at the White House writing that speech. I did it with Gautam. And it's a hard community, AAPI. It's pretty broad. And so having to weave together all the subcomponent groups within the AAPI um, category and, and do so in a way that gave justice to all and, and felt like it was also bundling up into something that was broadly true across everyone that's part of that community. It, it, it took some work. Um, and when you go out there, you're really on edge the whole time. In part, you're looking to see how the president performs. You write a speech, but it all comes down to delivery. Is he energetic? Is he invested in it? And a lot of your your view of the crowd um, in as much as it's about how are they hearing, it's how are they reacting, because obviously then the president derives from that energy and, and uses that for, for the speech. Um, and with this president, which isn't true across all presidents, his primary objective with the speech was to tell an American story that was aspirational to the people in front of him. You had other presidents where it was more about the cameras in the back and speaking to the nation at large or to certain um, news organizations and, and certain demographics in the country or political organizations in the country, this president always started with the people in front of him. Is this something that would resonate with them, that speaks to them, that having had the president in front of them, talking to them about their hopes, their dreams, did, did, it, did it work for them? And so we put a lot of effort into really limiting the speech sometimes with the policy call-outs so that we could, we could land that with the people in the room. You know, the, my, the guy who hired me, John Favreau, always used to say the president's speech is not a, a public announcement mechanism for all the White House policies and all the acronyms across all the agencies to get their due. And it would be part of our struggle with the internal policy teams, because often a presidential speech was this kind of tentpole moment. It was used as a forcing mechanism to actually put together our plan or strategy around a specific policy issue. And then in that moment, everyone who had worked on these issues over the course of years or a lifetime, or you know, if they're in the bureaucracy, this was a moment to really be able to list it all out. And, and the more you would do that, the harder it would be to keep that, that story for the people who were in front of the president. And so that was always a back and forth. I'll, I'll say the State of the Union, which is often seen as the biggest speech, aside from an inaugural that you can write for the president, is, is one of the least compelling and hardest speeches for speechwriters to work on, because in that speech, you really don't have as much allowance to push away the policy and focus on the story. 
it ends up being a kitchen sink of policy achievements and goals um, for the coming year. So in as much as it's it's one of the top speeches to want to work on, it's also one of the hardest and least fun because it's it's only in pockets of that speech do you get to really have some some storylines built out. But but some of the most powerful moments of Obama's presidency were those speeches. After Newtown, um, I remember the part of the State of the Union where everyone rose to their feet when he talked about the need for um, gun safety reform. Uh, like you can have those moments, but we always tried to make sure that people in attendance heard something that resonated with them. And that was always the bar. It's it's a good reminder when you invoke um, John Favreau's words about what the vehicle of a speech is. And it is a uh, even better reminder when you think about the, the legacy of the administration, that those words spoken, those policies enacted, those uh, jurists confirmed to the high bench, um, they all sort of create a marker of what America can be and where we ought to be going. And perhaps what's one of the more interesting tales, um, at least as someone that had a chance to work with some of you in the administration, but also just as a citizen, is exactly what happens after the last page of the book. Um, you know, the eight years of the administration were incredible in their own right. Uh, but when you take a look at uh, the work that Stephanie Valencia has done on behalf of, you know, projects um, up and down the country, but, you know, even things like the Latino Victory Project and making sure that you're um, raising money and awareness um, for individual candidates that may be first-time candidates of a particular community, or the work that um, even Gautam, when you were reminded by the First Lady, uh, when you had an opportunity for you and your husband, Andy, to meet both the President and Michelle Obama, when she said, please take care of each other, this resonant sense that the work is not done, that you continue to organize, you continue to fundraise, you continue to get out there. Um, and I think each of you in your own bodies of work have done that in incredible ways. I mean, we've seen that uh, alumni of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy are still organizing um, challenges and private sector commitments along the lines that they were um, while they were in the White House. Um, Stephanie, uh, both you uh, and the body of work that you've done, not only in the private sector leading you know, partnerships for Google previously but also um, almost any candidate um, that is a first-time candidate, I think, often gets advice to make sure to, to have an opportunity to connect with you in terms of understanding what network he or she should be navigating depending on their state, depending on their community, and depending on their tapping into the network of D.C. Uh, Gautam, you have created you know many, many uh, networks of, of change, but you know among them, uh, paid a, a special emphasis of focus when you take a look at um, South Asian Americans that are running for office. Um, Anish, you have a perch currently at one of the, the world's largest and most fascinating companies where you're paying attention to the responsibility of technology in shaping uh, news consumption and media consumption at this point in, in the world's history. Um, and you even see networks like the DNC's voter deployment project that pushes out Obama and campaign alumni to, you know, to help move the direction of our country at the ground level. Um, most interesting story of each of these is that you guys aren't done. The work didn't end with the conclusion of the administration. It didn't conclude with the end of the essay that you penned for this book. You continue to organize. Would just love to hear from each of you what you think the work that you did on behalf of the president and that you were able to articulate in this book means for the way that you wake up every day and think about what's left to do um, as you continue to move through not just this administration, but through your own individual communities and lives. Um, Gautam, you want to kick us off? 
Yeah, you know, I think for a lot of us, right, and this, I'll go back to where I started, which was right after the 2016 election. I think a lot of us felt really demoralized and dispirited, and, and we're trying to figure out what to do next. And certainly for the first couple of months of the Trump administration, especially when we saw things like the Muslim ban and efforts to roll back protections for the communities that we belong to, it was, I felt like, you know, I certainly felt like, you know, President Obama, Michelle Obama, please help us, you know, kind of like, um, you're my only hope, Obi-Wan Kenobi. And, and <laughs> I think a lot of us felt that urge for, we wanted them to come back and reassure us that everything was going to be better. Um, and Michael Stratmanis, who has a great chapter in the book and has known the Obamas for, I think, 30 years now, um, said something to us that has really stuck with me, which is, we have to stop asking Barack and Michelle Obama to, to save the world, right? They've They've done enough. They've done their time and more. They've sacrificed a great deal. And now it's sort of on us to pick up that charge and that mantle and carry it forward, whether it's running for office or for, you know, making change in uh, the tech sector or disrupting politics. There's so many different things that we can do, even down at organizing our communities, um, that it's, it's really now, I think, on all of us to do that. And one of the great things about writing this book and, and editing the, um, the chapters and working with Stephanie and Anish and the other 15 authors was just to to be reminded of the incredible passion that so many of us have for serving our country, for making life better for all of us. And so, um, you know, whether it was in the White House or, or now on the outside, um, I think there is still a huge opportunity to make that sort of hope and change a reality. Um, and we we can't wait around for Barack and Michelle Obama to do it. We got to do it ourselves. Yeah, and I would just add, you know, I think a lot of us told our stories in a way that um, we wanted to make sure resonated with people to understand the policy process and understand, of course, the people who were behind it, um, but to really inspire them to let them know that there were people like us from backgrounds like ours who made it to working in the White House. And at least for me, and I can only speak for myself, but, you know, if my chapter can reach one Latina who is unsure of herself, that she matters and she belongs and she, you know, um, her voice is important, um, you know, uh, this, this book and this, my contribution to this book will have been well worth it. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I would add, and I agree with all that, is um, I think I left the White House, or at least... Uh, the Obama administration ended with me realizing that a lot of us were naive and and felt like, especially for people who joined Obama later, who, who weren't with him when he had to prove the potential to actually win the nomination, it all just kind of happened. I mean, we worked really hard, but there was momentum, at least for the first two to four years going into the second term. There, there was a sense that this stuff was like the time had come for all of these steps, um, for broader rights, for broader justice. And what I now think about is, is and why I'm at Facebook, which is a company with probably the most consequential, complicated, challenging problem set of any government or company, as you think about the integration of technology in society, what I think about is go for heart, go for messy. Um, that's where the most interesting and consequential work is happening. And there are so many big, messy, hard challenges that we face as a country when it comes to expanding economic opportunity, expanding justice. That, that those fights, which can be off-putting because they seem so difficult and you're not going to get everything to be perfect overnight and it's going to take a long period of time and a sustained amount of work, they can be off-putting for those reasons. But, but the moment we're in requires more of us to engage in those areas. Because if we don't, others will, and they will shape it in the way that, that they want to shape it. And I think those of us who believe in an America that is more just, that is more equal, 
an American dream that should be alive and well, um, we've got to go to those messy, hard, hard fights and we've got to just stay at it. And we've got to raise our kids to inherit it and their kids to inherit it because it's a multi-generational process. It's a good reminder that this work is hard, it is messy, and as we head into the holiday season, I, I think on behalf of, of not only our peers or community, um, but our nation, you know, we want to thank you for your service. Um, I, I do want to end with just one last question for Stephanie. You had mentioned that there's this notion, if you could reach just one um, young daughter, one Latina child in this country, um, that you would have, that this story sort of, you know, accomplished its point. And that's, that's an incredibly poignant reflection, because not only in terms of your own personal history growing up, where you come from, but also what you were able to achieve over the last eight years and where you are now. Now, I'm curious, when you see that messiness that Anish speaks to, um, why do you think it still is important to remind that young, uh, that young child, why do you think it's important to remind them what it means to be American? Well, I think right now there's so much of a question, and, and it's very specifically the Latino community is under attack. And I think that um, it's really important to remind people, um, especially within our community, that we are part of this country. We have a really important contribu contributions we've made to this country from well before when this country was founded, when New Mexico used to be part of Old Mexico. Um, and, you know, making sure that people know that we belong and that, you know, it is okay to be 100% American and 100% Latino or 100% American and 100% feeling Mexican-American and that those are, um, you know, that, that we are part of this country and that's part in this, that diversity and our contribution to diversity is uh, what makes this country great. And we shouldn't, um, we shouldn't, uh, you know, take personally the attacks coming from the White House on our community and we should continue to contribute and thrive uh, and live and um, find ways to elevate the stories of people who are making those contributions in society today. Well, I think that's an incredibly um, important reminder from anyone who's chasing dreams or change or hope. Um, Anish, Stephanie, Gautam, thank you for, for joining the podcast today. Thank you for putting together this incredible work. And for anyone interested, please do check out West Wingers stories from the Dream Chasers, uh, sorry, the Dream Chasers, Changemakers and Hope Creators inside the Obama White House on sale from Penguin Books today. Thanks, everybody. Really appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Theme music by Chris Thomas. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of this show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening. This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle.